Hello, and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today, all my lovely friends, all my lovely people out there, I'm going to be talking about the Great Train Robbery of 1963. So my understanding is that this must be a pretty famous case from the articles I've read. You know, it makes an appearance on a lot of the lists that come up when you search, like, best real heist, coolest real heist, uh, most whatever, XYZ, real heists. This is always on the list. And I think people sort of have an understanding, like, what the great train robbery is, or, like, what the great train robbery... Like, they have an idea, at the very least. However, it's a lot of misunderstandings, and I'm going to get into that later. But first, please remember to follow the podcast on Instagram at high t underscore obsessed underscore podcast, and on Twitter at high to podcast for updates, memes, book reviews, and all that great content that I'm cranking out on those platforms. Mostly Instagram is the big one I use. It's just like a little easier to post like a funny picture and then whatever else. And the story thing is nice. Anyway, if you want to hop on and drop a five-star review and rating on the podcast platform of your choice, that'd be super sick and greatly appreciated as well. And also, also, I made my first appearance on another podcast, and that was... A couple weeks ago, I appeared on HowlerPod, the first Red Rising podcast ever, and we did a book draft of moments from Iron Gold. So if for some reason you are a Red Rising fan and you listen to this and haven't checked that out yet, definitely be sure to check out the episode I was on and all of HowlerPod's episodes because they are awesome. Anyway, with all the housekeeping out of the way, you know, we swept, we mopped, we dusted, we did all that. Let's get this going. So I don't know about you guys and gals out there listening, but when I hear train robbery, my mind harkens back to the days of the Wild West. Cowboy movies, westerns, that sort of thing. I definitely don't think of England, and I definitely, definitely don't think of it happening in the 1960s. So, and I find it totally shocking that it was a huge store being called the crime of the century by many at the time. So I think, because this is a pretty confusing robbery heist that happens, right? And that's what took me, like, I had to delay it for a week. I had to release the Point Break episode a week early instead, because there's a lot going on. It was kind of hard to research. It was hard to narrow down exactly what was going on. So I think what I'm going to do is we're going to get into the very basics of what happened. Then we'll get into, like, the lead-up, the event itself, a little bit of the aftermath, and I'll give you, like, a roster of the crew members and stuff like that. I might get into a little bit of a, like, where are they now? I mean, I think they're all dead, but, like, what happened after the heist, kind of like the little montages you did at the end of, like, rom-toms or something. Anyway, this is the bare-bones, basic version of what happened. On the morning of August 8th, 1963, a Royal Mail train headed from Glasgow to London on the West Coast Main Line was robbed by a gang of around 16 men. And there's a little bit of confusion over how many exactly were there, but it's 15, 16 seems to be the number. Now, this gang had insider information from an individual only known as the Ulsterman, and the robbers made off with 2.6 million pounds in mostly used bills, thus untraceable, they weren't marked or anything like that, and that's equivalent to around 55 million pounds today, or around $74 million, and that's 
I took two point six million, translated it into fifty five million pounds, like modern, and then into U.S. currency. So that math could be off. I've heard other podcasts have this in the figure differently. I've seen other websites have it slightly differently, but I believe it is around seventy four million dollars. So that's a staggering amount of money. However, the sheer ambition of the heist meant that they needed a commensurately large crew. Commensurately. They needed an equally large crew, right? They had to be up to the task. So that's how we did the 16 members of the gang, plus the informant, which reduces the payday for criminal to around 160 pounds in 1963, which again, through my little math thing, comes out to around $4,300,000 in today's U.S. currency. And because I'd imagine most of my listeners are American, also the stats sort of bat that up, I converted it into dollars. Just to make my life easier, easier to wrap my head around it at least. And that's, you know, that's a good amount of money for a night's work, you know, for three, 4.3 mil. Not bad, not bad. And the bulk of this money, the bulk of the 74 million, I believe I said, was never recovered by law enforcement. And that's the basis of what happened, right? So with the basics out of the way, it seems as good a time as any to get into the members of the crew. I'm not going to get super in-depth into them because there's like 17 in the actual game and then some other ones who were accomplices and stuff like that. But I'm just going to give you their names and a teeny bit of background information and all that stuff. So we don't know the identity of three members of the crew, including the key informant and organizer only known as the Ulsterman which sounds super cool to me, and I don't really know why, because it just means a male resident of Ulster in Ireland, and the dude was presumably Irish. I mean, some members of the Jane have said that, but there is some confusion over who he was, or perhaps is, most likely was at this point. Anyway, in my head, for whatever reason, when I hear the Ulsterman, I kind of picture the head of a criminal empire, or the muscle in a criminal empire, but mostly the the uh, head like the bait honcho, sort of like Fergie in the town, and the Ulsterman wasn't that, so I don't know why, but that's what's going on in my head. Another unidentified member of the crew was known as Bill Flossie Jennings. Also pretty cool, I think. You know, you gotta have a cool uh, nickname if you're gonna be a criminal, especially if you're gonna be robbing trains. And Bill Flossie Jennings, Flossie, whatever we were gonna call him, that was not even his real criminal name. He was unknown to other members of the crew, so that's just... You know, we don't know who the actual guy who performed his roles was. And there's a final unknown member of the crew, bore the name Alf Thomas. Again, not the real name. True identity isn't known. And he was one of the Danes' heavies or their muscle. But the known members of the crew. And there's a, still a lot. So we have Bruce Reynolds, a.k.a. Napoleon, who's often credited with being the mastermind of the steam. And the he was sort of the leader of the Southwest game. And... That's like a London Dane of criminals. They've just been doing their thing, running some like con man type schemes and pulled off a uh, airport theft that resulted in, I believe, Dudless Gordon Goody getting arrested. The other three got off and Goody, who we're getting to now, uh, we'll get into in a minute. We'll get into Goody in a minute. Anyway, Bruce Reynolds, credited with being the mastermind, like I said, there uh, is some confusion over whether it was him or the Nets guy or just like the Tor 4 group. Who masterminded this heist, or really the Ulsterman or whatever, but Bruce Reynolds is credited with being the mastermind because of there were a lot of the criminals hyping themselves up over the years, writing memoirs. This was like a huge deal in England, obviously. It was the largest theft at the time, 
in terms of raw money. It was the only time to that point that the Royal Mail train had been robbed. It had been transporting money for 150 years at that point and had never been robbed. So this was a huge deal. And a lot of the criminals involved published these self-aggrandizing memoirs or gave like self-aggrandizing statements to the press, all that sort of thing. Anyway, Douglas Gordon Doody, a.k.a. Gordon, class at number two, organizer and blue guy type, might have also been the mastermind, loved to dress fancy, loved like fancy cars, fancy watches, that type of thing. Also got Charles Wilson, a.k.a. Charlie, another organizer and member of the Southwest Gang with Goody and Reynolds, and he was the treasurer of the heist, so he was responsible for divvying up the loot after the robbery. We also have Ronald Christopher Edwards, a.k.a. Buster, pretty nice, you know, another member of the Southwest Gang and organizer. Next we have to Brian Arthur Field, no nickname listed, which is a big red flag if you ask me, right? And Brian Field, go-between between the Ulsterman and the gang, also responsible for buying their um, hideaway, the Leather Slade Farm, and destroying it, but more on that to come. We got Roy John James, a.k.a. Weasel, which is a mixed bag as a nickname for a criminal, right? But... If they're a wheel man, I think that's a great name because the weasel, you're trusting him to get you out of any situation. You know he's driving fast, you know he's driving quick, you know he's shifty, all that good stuff. But if a guy's named Weasel and he's not the wheel man and I'm robbing a bank, right? I trust him to shoot a hostage or a cop or something and then rat on the rest of the troop. Like he's going to be the one that messes everything up and then he's going to get out of it by ratting on everyone else. So it's a low floor, high ceiling on a guy nicknamed Weasel, if you ask me. That's my opinion on the. Next, we have John Thomas Daly, a.k.a. Patty, another wheelman, and also responsible for stopping the train. It is hard to rob a moving train, after all, especially with the amount of loot we're going to be robbing it of, right? Next, there is James Edward White, a.k.a. Jimmy. He was responsible for procuring supplies pre-heist and also for uncoupling the carriage. So, more on that to come. Next, there is Roger John Cordroy, no nickname. Another train stopper, also the kind of like tech guy, electronics expert. Then we get Robert Welch, a.k.a. Bob. He was muscle. South Coast Raiders were brought in. So there we have the Southwest London Jane, right? Their experienced group of criminals don't have experience robbing trains. So they bring in another gang of train robbers called the South Coast Raiders. And there we get like the train experts from. And we also get a lot of muscle who's just going to help with like the ins and outs of getting a ton of money off train quickly. Our next one is Thomas William Wisby, a.k.a. Tommy, sadly not Tommy Shelby, from PD Blinders. He's also muscle, member of the South Coast Raiders. James Hussey, a.k.a. Big Jim, muscle, made sense with a name like Big Jim. South Coast Raiders, Danny Pembroke, a.k.a. AKA Frank Monroe, muscle, and member of the South Coast Raiders. Ronald Arthur Bates, a.k.a. Ronnie, probably in London or England, the most famous member of this crew, also had very little to do on the actual night of the heist, but more on him to come. And that's quite the crew, you know, almost Game of Thronesian, really, because it's going to be really difficult to keep that all down. Going forward, I will stick to, like, the main folks involved and not give us, like, a rundown of what each 17, each of the 17 were up to during this whole thing. And, you know, we're just going to do our best. And if I don't do a good job keeping this easy to follow, let me know. And I'll try to do better next time. In addition to making the story hard to follow, the sheer number number of people involved in this heist also made it difficult to pin down exactly what happened. 
because we have accounts from all the criminals, all of which differ in small or even major ways. Then we have the accounts of those on the train when it was robbed, the guards, the driver, the firemen, and the postal workers to consider as well. So we have all these stories, all of them, even if it's for innocent reasons, are going to differ. But then with the media speculation and hysteria after the heist, the romanticism is of exaggerating the crime in the papers because it was cool and like, you know, people aren't trusting the government at this point, kind of got off relatively violence-free, all that good stuff. And like the sheer audacity of it just makes it seem ripped from the movies. And then the criminals writing these super cool stories about themselves, engaging in myth-making after the fact, it's just not a recipe for a super hard-to-pin-down heist. But here's what we do know. The plan to intercept, stop, and rob the train was concocted after Gordon Goody and Buster Edwards were contacted by Brian Fields, the liaison between the gang and the Ulsterman. The Ulsterman was a senior Royal Mail security officer who had in-depth knowledge of the train, the train schedule, and how much money it carried. For example, he would know that the train had no security because they just didn't think anyone would rob the train, you know? This train's got 75 postal workers on it and no security guards. Important to remember. Anyway, Goody and Edwards, along with Bruce Reynolds, who, like I said, is often credited with being the mastermind of this heist, and Charlie Wilson, so Goody, Edwards, Reynolds, Wilson, spend the next few months working out a plan of attack for pulling off this heist. Although they were pretty prolific and successful criminals in their own right, they had little or no experience robbing trains, and because of that, and the size of the job, the decision was made to expand the crew. So, one of the things they did in earlier in their criminal career was rob the London airport. And uh, only one of them was arrested. I believe it was Douglas Gordon Goody. And he allegedly bribed a police officer to replace his bowler cap, which was in evidence because they, the police knew that the criminals used bowler caps to escape and like hide and were wearing them or whatever. And he paid the police officer allegedly to replace it with one that was way bigger than his that was in custody. And so then when he's on the stand, the prosecutor's like, you know, let's put this hat on the guy. He says it's not his hat and puts it on. It's way too big. doesn't fit Goody at all. And I guess OJ ripped off that thing. You know, if the hat does not fit, you must have quit. Works for our guy, Goody. And he's out on the streets planning another heist. So due to their lack of experience robbing trains, they bring in the South Coast Raiders, which were also based in London, but they were accomplished train robbers. It wasn't just the fact that they needed some train expertise. They also needed a lot of muscle to pull the shop off. So in the days, the weeks leading up to the heist, they purchased a nearby home, Leather Slade Farm, in the country to use as a hideout, both prior to the robbery, you know, they got to have it as a staging grounds, get ready to pull off this job, and also as a hideout after the fact to lay low and kind of chill because, you know, they're city boys. They're figuring out in the country they'll be safe, they'll be chilling, they'll be good. The group departed from this hideout dressed in army uniforms, and so we got a big truck, what we in America call a tractor trailer, you know, 18-wheeler type thing, or just a big truck, you know. In England, that is called a lorry. So the one of the books I read on this was written by an English author, and so I had to, like, look up every eighth word because it was a super British. Anyway... So we got the lorry and two Land Rovers painted green to give them an army appearance. And they have like fake army uniform. Well, they have army uniforms. They have fake army work papers, all that stuff. Hoping to be looked at as a group on night maneuvers if they are seen. Around 3 a.m. on August 8th, 1963, like I said, the traveling post office, also called the Up Special, which had run for 
So I think it's listed differently on different things, but the Postal Service website has it as over 125 years with no interference. It's stopped by the gang. Specifically responsible for stopping the train was John Daly, who had been taught how to stop the trains by Roger Corduroy, the tech guy, if you recall. And the way to stop trains these days, in those days was to place a black leather glove over the green light on the rails, which indicated that the train was good to proceed, no issues and all that. So we cover up the green light and switch on the battery power. You know, you connect it to a battery, to the red light, to illuminate it so that they stop. So a lot of the more basic looks into the story say that is what happened. However, for unknown reasons, Daly did not follow this procedure, which had been carefully explained to him for weeks leading up and how important it was to specifically follow this sad procedure because doing it this way prevented the train and train station from being alerted that there was an issue. Instead, Daly unscrewed the bulb and then used the battery to illuminate the red light. Because the light failed and was unplugged, basically, the because the light was unscrewed and no longer working and all that, a an alarm was sounded and the uh, train station was alerted, and the train stopped, all that good stuff. They go out to investigate, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so with the light failure alarm alert ringing, it was pure luck that the gang was able to carry out the heist as planned because there was a very good chance that they could have been caught by a member of the train company. There were two other issues with the train stoppage, although it did go on pretty much how the robbers intended despite these. The first issue was that the signal for the net stop, so the net's light, was visible to the driver of the train. So he did stop at this one, even though he did see that the net signal down the line still was green for go. And that didn't really make sense. So he could have just blown past this light, figuring it was faulty and kept going, and they would have been screwed. The second issue is that another train could have come up on the stop train and hit it. Now, I believe Bruce Reynolds claimed that he had put stop tracks out behind the train, but the author of the book I read was dubious that he would have been able to do so far enough away and also been able to pull off the heist with the rest of the crew. But anyway, despite these hitches, the crew boarded the train as planned, and they were able to uncouple or disconnect the third train car, which was, you know, so they were unable, they were able to disconnect the first and second train car, the, like, engine and the tr- first train car or whatever, from the rest of the train cars and pull it forward about a half mile. And they didn't, you know, they needed to get away from the rest of the train because there were 75 workers on it. They didn't want to be stopped. And they only needed the first two because the loot was in the second one. The crew did not use, uh, the crew didn't use firearms during the robbery and were armed with clubs and pipes. And because of this and the relatively low level of violence involved, like I said, it has sort of developed a romantic glint in England from what I've read. However, one worker on the train went out to investigate the light issue and was tackled by and thre- was tackled and threatened and was feared like just super jump the rest of his life died only like eight years later of a heart attack and he was like 36 so fair to say this probably impacted him the rest of his life another who was the driver uh jack mills 58 he was hit over the head by one of the robbers and rendered semi-conscious his injuries which disputed whether it was from the blow itself or from falling would hamper him for the remainder of his life. And we don't really know who hit him. It seems like the robbers knew, but they didn't really snitch until people started dying, and there's a couple different reports. Anyway, the robbers brought their own driver, right? But he was retired, and he wasn't familiar with the size and type of the train and engine, 
So they forced poor Jack Mills, who they had just clobbered over the head, to drive the train while semi-conscious to the rendezvous 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 to the rendezvous point with the trots about a half mile away there were also minor fights with staff in the second carriage which contained the money and a couple of them were pretty badly beat up and then the rest sort of gave in once they were all subdued the criminals began removing the money from the train and into the trucks the money was in sacks and the game used a human chain to move the money from the train into the truck quickly and effectively getting all but eight of the 128 sacks of money from the train and loaded into their truck in only 15 to 20 minutes. And part of this was because they were very organized and they knew or planned the whole heist to go down in a half hour. From stopping the train to getting away with the loot, or from stopping the train to loading the loot to getting away. And they were able to do that pretty much on their timeline. Once the money was loaded into the truck, they instructed the rail workers to lie down in the train for 30 minutes before leaving and getting authorities. So pay attention to that. That's important. Having threatened the rail workers, ruined their night, stolen tons of money, they then departed from the scene of their crime using bat roads and made their way back to the getaway in around 45 minutes or an hour, listening via radio to police along the way. At right about the same time they cleanly made their escape back to their safe house, their crimes were reported. Like I've touched on a few times, their safe house was called Leatherslade Farm and was about 27 miles from the scene of their crime. It's listed as 27 or 28 in most of the sources I have found. And they specifically chose this site because it was deemed both close enough to allow them to reach it quickly but far enough away to avoid immediately falling under suspicion, so they thought it would be a good place to lie low for a few days for the heat to die down. Unfortunately, because they had specifically instructed the postal workers not to move for 30 minutes after they had left, the police deduced that the Dane must have ended up at a safe house within a 30-mile radius of the robbery and not gone too far away. Thus, the Dane was forced to rush their getaway, moving the planned day from Sunday, so they planned to leave Sunday, up to Friday, so the next day. Having dispersed the money into equal shares for the 16 participant plus one for the Osterman, along with several smaller shares, which were called drinks for lesser accomplices, uh, the main share being around 150,000 pounds that I mentioned earlier, the crew realized that they would need new vehicles for their escape, and Brian Field comes back into the picture, helping the Dane acquire new vehicles and allowing them to go to his house for a time to recuperate and then like disperse. More importantly, Field also agreed to take care of the evidence left at the safe house. How do you take care of this evidence? Well, he was tasked with burning down the farm, only he didn't do this. And there are some disputes again, was he responsible for it, was he responsible for hiring someone to do it? But in a documentary about this case, and there are there are a number of documentaries, but anyway, one of them, uh, Nick Reynolds, son of the supposed mastermind Bruce Reynolds, said of Field, the guy who was paid to basically go back to the farm and burn it down, did a runner. Which, translated into American English, means he got the money and then ran away. Do a runner means something along the lines of dining and dashing in the U.S., like, basically just failure to perform the job after getting paid is what we're getting at here. But, the crew didn't leave all responsibility to field, as most of them were careful to clear the place for fingerprints before leaving. One fun thing to add, that before ditching the house, the group played a game of Monopoly using the money they had stolen. So they used the real money and played a game of Monopoly. And that's like a pretty famous thing from the case. I believe the Monopoly board was auctioned off and some of the like uh, community chess stuff like that, those cards were autographed by 
members of the heist. Again, I believe Bruce Reynolds and Auchent. So that's pretty cool. However, the Monopoly board and a ketchup bottle were among the only things that the crew missed in their sweep of the farm for fingerprints, and fingerprints were recovered from these two things. They also left behind a bevy of evidence, including empty post office sats, sleeping bags, and some Scottish currency, because they were dubious of it for what seemed to be United Kingdom issues that I will not get into because I do not understand them at this juncture. At this point, even though the police had some evidence from the farm and the eyewitness recounts, all that stuff, the investigation wasn't going super well. The press was running with all sorts of rumors, and there's a lot of speculation that this was an inside job, which it was, we know that, but also speculation that it was an inside job from super high up in the ranks of the Postal Service. And there was a lot of criticism and, like, shock and just like what the fuck like how was this train left unguarded and just like a lot of criticism of the lack of foresight that this train carrying millions and millions of pounds would be a high level target because of this the postmaster general returned early from his vacation in spain and he announced that at the time of the robbery the three top security trains which should have been on the mail run that night were all out of action which tough look for the postmaster general and Tough look for the Postal Service of Great Britain, you know? This fact that the top security trains were all out of service led to more speculation that they had been tampered with in a run-up to the job, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Because of the evidence and rumors that the robbery had been the result of an inside job, the post office's own policing department, the investigation branch, was called into action. Every available member of staff was put on the case, and they investigated all all of the over 70 post office employees who were working on the train that night. Their top priority for this mission was to figure out exactly how much money was stolen, because in the immediate aftermath, and even to this day, a little bit unclear exactly how much was stolen. A majority of the money didn't have their serial numbers recorded and was thus untraceable, and most of the bills were of small denominations ranging from 10 shilling notes to 1 in 5 pound notes. Like I said, there were Scottish notes mixed in, which were mostly discarded, uh, I guess there was like a weird thing where Scottish notes weren't trusted for whatever reason. There were also some Irish notes, and I think some of them were distorted, but they weren't, for the most part, wholesalely distorted like the Scottish. But the only other really noteworthy thing about the money is that it contained a mix of older, larger, white five-pound bills, five-pound notes, and smaller blue ones that were in the midst of being transitioned between the two to the smaller new ones. Just a little tidbit. So the generally accepted figure that was found to be missing is 2,595,997 pounds, 10 shillings, and then 0D, which I do not know what that means, basically around 2,600,000 pounds stolen. Due to this, a reward of 260,000 pounds was offered for information aiding in the recovery of the money or arrest of the thieves. 10,000 of these pounds came from the post office. This large reward and their confirmation of the ludicrously high sum of the theft contributed to media attention and also led to a lot of pressure to solve this case. You know, a ton of money was stolen. We gotta figure out who did this and what's going on. In the days after the crime, tips would come flooding into police stations. One of these came from John Maris, a farmer who used a field adjacent to Leather Slade Farm where the criminals had been hiding out. Maris was suspicious of the new residents of the farm for a number of reasons. 
First, he had heard that they offered £100 over the asking price of the sellers. He also noticed that they had blacked out all the windows. After the robbery, several tr- vehicles appeared in the yard of the house, including a large truck. So he, formed, he phoned police to report this information, but it was not until the next day after a further phone call from him because he was super freaked out and paranoid that a ton of criminals could be living down the street from him. So after the follow-up phone call the next day, a police car was sent out to Leatherslade. Once the police realized it was the hideout, Maris basically became a star and a national hero overnight. The press camped outside his house, and he had a hard time dealing with his newfound publicity. One benefit is that he was able to claim a £19,000 reward for his effort, but it also proved to be a double-edged sword. Maris and his wife and their children worried for their safety for years. Maris hid jars of acid all over his property in case he was attacked and carried a club with him at all times. They also received lots of fan mail, but also threatening letters, some of which were believed to be genuine, not only by Maris, but by authorities as well. And these continued to arrive, both the fan mail and the threatening, like, murder, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to threaten you mail, even after the family had moved far away from the original home and the safe house. Finally, the family was even wrapped up in legal battles as the members of the heist tried to defend themselves once captured. So they ended up losing a lot of the money in the legal cases and stuff after. And the criminal's decision to purchase a house in the country proved to be a big mistake because everyone noticed them being weird and like Maris noticed all the like paying extra and in the country you know it people stick out in the city no one really sticks out as one of the members of law enforcement who was involved in this case would go on to point out like if they had just gone back to a London safe house they probably would have never been caught anyway like I mentioned before getting derailed no pun intended Despite the evidence gathered from the farm, including a few fingerprints, the investigation still wasn't going too well. And that is because, besides the fingerprints, there wasn't really any actionable evidence. In those days, also in those days, they could match fingerprints for sure. So like, if they arrested someone whose fingerprints matched those left of the crime, golden, we're good. But they, it was so time-consuming and like, fingerprints to be left at well, anywhere that it wasn't really feasible to take the fingerprints from a scene and match them with those in the database. It wasn't like we could look it up in the computer and we could say, oh, this guy arrested in, you know, like XYZ tiny town has the fingerprints found at this crime scene in this other tiny town. It would have taken like years to do that. And because of where the crime occurred and where the criminals ended up and the fact that the post office was involved, there were several investigations going on. So there's the local Aylesbury investigation, the Postal Service investigation, and a London-based investigation. However, because none of these were making much headway, the Flying Squad got involved. The Flying Squad, also known as the Robbery Squad, and there's also some official and unofficial nicknames that I'm not going to get into, but they are basically an elite anti-robbery task force for Scotland Yard. And they have like a pretty unique setup, you know, they have... An unlimited jurisdiction in London, hence the name The Flying Squad. And I'm not sure if it's like expanded to a nationwide thing since then, or if it's still just London. But these are like genuinely badass police. Like, they're gonna solve shit, they're gonna do like crazy, they're gonna have like very advanced uh, tactics and all that. And, you know, so basically we got some tough customers here, and they are now leading the investigation into the Great Train Robbery of 1963. 
and the Flying Squad formed a specific unit for this investigation called the Train Robbery Squad, which was composed of six members. Tommy Butler was amongst the most famous members of the Flying Squad, and he was the leader of the Train Robbery Squad. He was nicknamed One Day Tommy for his ability to solve and close cases rapidly. He was also called Mr. Flying Squad and the Gray Fox for his, trace, for his case tracking ability. From all this, we get the picture, right? He was a formidable topper, as they say, in old London town. He was dotted. He's determined. He's never going to rest. So we got the high work ethic going. But we also got a guy who's really fucking smart and good at what he does. Tough for criminals to overcome. And I got more on him later. Want to get through this before getting into that. The train robbery squad was composed of experienced and driven detectives. They barely slept or did anything besides work on this case, because Tommy Butler was a crazy person. In spite of their hard work and determination and their skill, they weren't making a lot of progress on this case. Partially because of the things I've touched on before, you know, lack of evidence hard to use evidence, and also because of Butler's autocratic leadership of the squad. He refused to share information, he kind of ran them into the ground, and he didn't reveal his motives behind his various orders. A breakthrough came when informants were willing to come forward, revealing the identities of those involved in the robbery. The names of these informants have never been released, which is, you know, a great look for the Metro PD of London. Great look for them. So this is speculation on my part, and I don't think it's a great leap in logic. I think others have echoed it during my research. But I like to assume that one of the guys who came forward might have been a potential member of the crew. Uh, because he was nicked right before the heist went off. And I think... He... So he exchanged the information to get out of jail. We know that for sure. And I think it was probably someone who was in on the job, who got arrested, and then was unable to join. And they probably, if that's the case, should have just paid him a little bit, even though he wasn't involved. And... This guy, the first informant, he didn't have a full grasp on all the people involved. He didn't have like a full complete list. He didn't have all their accurate names and all that. But there was a second informant, a woman, who was able to fill in the gaps. So I guess the fact that the first guy didn't have all the information maybe discredits my theory. But the fact that we had two informants coming forward a few weeks after a huge gang of criminals had committed this crime, I think it speaks to the biggest flaw of the heist. So it was very well planned. They did make mistakes, but well planned, fairly well executed, and there wasn't a lot for the police to go off of. But the fact that they had 17 people in their crew, plus the smaller, less involved accomplices, I think it virtually guaranteed that this is getting out at some point. Even if it wasn't a couple weeks later, which is what it took for the police to find them, get enough evidence after getting the names, their names from the informants, I think even if it took 20 years, someone is slipping up and everyone's going down for this. If, like, one person talks too loudly at a bar, you know, says something to the wrong person, pisses off their girlfriend who they talked to this about, like, you know, anything. The whole thing would have come tumbling down eventually. So once the identities were known to Scotland Yard, a decision was made against the wishes of Tommy Butler and the other members of the train squad to publish photos of the suspects which in turn resulted in them going to ground, going completely on the lamb, hard to find, hard to pin down. However, with the names known, the police were able to match some of the fingerprints to some of the suspects, and arrests start trickling in. The first man arrested was Roger Cordroy. 
And I'm not going to go, you know, tit for tat all the way through the list of who was arrested and when, but this arrest is notable because he was laying low with a man named William Bull, who was definitively not involved with the robbery. But he was sentenced to 30 years in prison where he died for a crime he didn't commit. Because Cordroy was his friend and owed him money, so he paid off Bull a loan from an earlier whatever. And because he paid off the loan, Bull let him stay with him for a time. And he didn't know where the money came from. And he was just like helping out a friend basically and got the book thrown at him. And all the criminals got like 25 to 30 years, which was a super severe sentencing for the time. And even like the prosecutors like, damn. Anyway, the trial of the robbers began at Alsbury Assizes, Buckinghamshire on January 20th, 1964. So a few months after the robbery. Well, yeah, a few months after the robbery. And Justice Edmund Davies presided over the trial, which lasted for 51 days and included 613 exhibits of evidence and 240 witnesses. So this was a huge deal. A little bit after the trial began, John Daly was acquitted on was acquitted due to lack of evidence, and that was on February 11th, 1964. And that stemmed from Butler's poor communication, refusal, refusal to share information. And the only real evidence they had from him were the fingerprints on the Monopoly board. And because the Monopoly board belonged to Bruce Reynolds, who was John Daly's brother-in-law, Daly was able to argue that the fingerprints had gotten there when they played it at like a holiday or something, a family party. So he was definitively involved with this. But he stated although his money was lost or stolen. So he didn't get off with the money. It pretty much seems like he went straight after this. On April 15th, 1964, the proceedings ended with the judge describing the robbery as a crime of sordid violence inspired by vast greed and passing sentences of 30 years imprisonment on seven of the robbers. And like I said, this was a pretty strong sentence with even some of the prosecutors being blown away by the severity. And a lot of them ended up being released within 15 years or other things that we're going to But still, you know, that was a lot. Additional controversy with the prosecutions and all this came from the fact that several of the robbers alleged that the police framed them up to get convictions. Now, for at least one of these, this doesn't seem to have been a denial of involvement, at least like after the fact. They probably denied being involved during their trial. Uh, but just that they claimed that the police strengthened their cases and fabricated evidence to get convictions. So Douglas Gordon Goody, in an uh, article for The Guardian, admitted to being there, right? He was like, this was my job, you know, I did it, I was definitely involved, but the evidence against me is fake, he says, because he claimed that the prosecution used evidence in the form of his suede shoes with paint on them from the farmhouse. And he says that was fate because he was not wearing those shoes when he committed the crime. I think that checks out. I don't know that I would wear suede shoes to rob a train. And that he was wearing his desert boots and not fancy shoes, which I think checks out. And that the police took his shoes, painted them with paint from the hideout, and then put them at the scene or whatever. And that made sense, I think. You know, I don't think my guy is wearing suede shoes i think he's probably wearing boots to commit a crime so i think it's fair to say that it seems like there was likely some chicanery involved despite the guilt of most of those sentenced 
Ultimately, three of those present during the robbery weren't convicted or brought to trial due to lack of evidence, though it seems like police knew about two of them. So there was Bill Flossie Jennings, a.k.a. Mr. One, and according to Bruce Reynolds, Flossie had no previous convictions and stayed well out of contact with the group. A shadowy figure, nobody knew exactly where he lived or even what his real name was. All we knew that he was 100% and was sure to last out the hullabaloo. The last report of him said that it was, he was in a safe house, banged up with two gorgeous girls and enough champagne to sink a battleship. Henry Thomas Harry Smith, born October 20th, 1930, is believed by some to be Flossie, and unlike most of the robbers, he actually got to spend his share of the loot, buying 28 houses and a hotel and drinking club in Portsmouth. Smith died in 2008. So Smith was the only man that was like on several of the lists compiled by investigators, and including Tommy Butler and also members involved in the crime, who wasn't arrested. There was also Danny Pembroke, known as Frank Monroe during the robbery, and he never took his gloves off at the safe house, so he left no evidence and also walked free. And there's also Pops, the replacement train driver, who wasn't suspected of having existed because, you know, he wasn't a criminal, his only involvement was them with them was their being there to drive the train he wasn't used to drive the train because you know they used jack mills who everyone said jack mills drove the train so they knew that they didn't know someone else was brought in blah 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 and he didn't even get his twenty thousand pound share as an accomplice so he didn't benefit or get harmed from his involvement in this case now in addition to those three two escaped from prison so there's charlie wilson wilson took up residence outside montreal Quebec in Canada, on Rigaud, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess that's Rigaud Mountain, in an upper-class neighborhood where the large secluded properties are surrounded by trees. He lived under the name Ronald Alloway, a name borrowed from a Fulham shopkeeper, and it was soon joined by his wife and three children. There, he joined an exclusive doll club and participated in local activities and within the community. It was only after he reached out to his brother-in-law in the UK for Christmas that Scotland Yard was able to track him down and capture him, recapture him. And Scotland Yard waited three months before making their move, hoping that Wilson would lead them to Reynolds, who was at that point unapprehended. Wilson was ultimately arrested on January 25th, 1968 by Tommy Butler. There's also Ronnie Bates. Bates fled to Paris, where he acquired new identity papers and went under the knife, got some plastic surgery done. And then in 1970, he moved again from Paris to Adelaide, Australia, where he worked for a time as a builder, and he and his wife had a third son. Somehow, he was tipped off that Interpol was showing interest, and he moved to Melbourne, working as a set constructor for Channel 9. And then again, he moved to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. In May 2001, he's 71, and he had suffered three strokes. He voluntarily returned to England and accepted that he was going to get arrested. On July 2nd, 2009, Bates was denied parole by Justice Jack Straw, who considered Bates to still be wholly unrepentant. But he was released on August 6th, 2009, two days before his 80th birthday, on compassionate grounds. He ultimately died December 2013, aged 84. In addition to those two who escaped from prison, a further three evaded arrest or escaped before their trial or before their sentencing or whatever. 
and they remained on the lam for a number of years. There was Jimmy White, who had already been a fugitive for 10 years before the crime and had eluded capture while remaining in the UK, and he continued to do so before being captured and tried in 1966. He ultimately only was sentenced for 18 years. Next there was Buster Edwards, who fled to Mexico with his family, and he joined Bruce Reynolds there, and later Charlie Wilson. Uh, but he returned to England voluntarily in 1966 and was sentenced to 15 years. Next, Bruce Reynolds fled to Mexico in 1964 and was later joined by his wife and son after a few months once they lost the very obvious police surveillance of them. They also spent time in Canada with the Wilsons, but they burned through their money very quickly, living much more ostentatiously than the Wilsons, and they moved to France, ultimately returning to England, where Bruce was captured by Tommy Butler in 1968. He was sentenced to 25 years. So yeah, ultimately the majority of those involved in the Great Train Robbery of 1963 got their justice. Somewhat straight after their jail time, you know, some learned their lesson, some remained involved in the criminal world, and some died young. We still have some things to wrap up, though. What happened to all that money? Ultimately, of the almost £2,600,000, less than £400,000 were eventually recovered. And over half of this amount consisted of the shares of Roger Cordroy and Brian. A little bit more was recovered from Jimmy White's caravan. And Roy James was carrying, that's Weasel, uh, was carrying a little bit when captured. The final sum recovered was found in a telephone box, telephone box in Great Dover Street, Newington, South London. However, it appears that most of it was stolen, spent, lost, or destroyed and that's not out there in some like great treasure trove waiting to be discovered. It was just simply lost because it wasn't marked and is dash was untraceable. So even if like someone has a note from 1963 or earlier, which seems unlikely at this point, um, they're not going to know that it's from this unless a robber had it and told them. Now, there are two more pieces of controversy that I wanted to get into before wrapping up with a conversation about Tommy Butler. So, who was the Ulsterman? In 2014, Douglas Goody told journalists that the Ulsterman was a man by the name of Patrick McKenna, who at the time of the robbery was a 43-year-old postal worker living in South Ford, Lincolnshire. McKenna was originally from Belfast and allegedly met Goody, and f allegedly met Goody four times in 1963. Goody said that he found out McKenna's name only when he saw it written inside his glasses case. So Goody was 85 years old at the time he made this confession, and he seems to have gone straight after the case, even dialing down you know, his ostentatious dressing and whatnot from his old, younger days. So it's a little strange if he made up these allegations for no reason. And there's no knowledge of what happened to McKenna's supposed share, alleged share of this crime. But his children were absolutely blown away by this allegation. And some have speculated that McKenna either donated his share to the Catholic Church over the years or he had the money stolen from him. He also died poor and had no known record or criminal associations. So there are, 
is a lot of speculation that Goody was mistaken at best and that Matena wasn't involved. Maybe he was a do-between or accomplice at most, but there's a lot of doubt that he was the Ulsterman. Others have claimed that Sammy Osterman was part of the gang and that Ulsterman was just a nickname that was mostly the result of people mishearing his last name. So we have some ideas about who this Ulsterman character was, but we don't really know. This is just one piece of controversy. Anyway, to wrap up this case, we've returned to Tommy Butler, leader of the Flying Squad and the Train Robbery Squad. Butler was relentless, rising meteorically up the ranks of the Metropolitan Police Department. And he did it, like, shockingly fast. He died at only 57 years of age, a lifelong bachelor, solely dedicated to his pursuit of criminals and justice, and he died still living with his mother. Tommy, because of his renown and handling of the case, was able to forestall his retirement, which should have occurred in 1966, but he was ultimately forced to retire in 1969. So they had compulsory retirement at 55, I believe. He was able to, like, deny it until he turned 57 and they're like bro you gotta go and he died like one year later in 1970 not a full year because he was still 57 and you know this was a man who rarely drank didn't smoke and it's possible you know the long years abusing himself chasing these criminals the long hours training stressful horrible work it's possible that that stuff killed him but it's also possible that the lack of something to live for you know he just had his life passion stolen from him basically forced to retire One of those things sent him to an early grave. But that, my lovely friends, wraps up the Great Train Robbery of 1963. A twisty, turvy story that was pretty long, a little hard to follow, and incredibly interesting, you know? It was just like a cool story. It was kind of hard to research, get into, present in a way that I was happy with. I hope it worked out, and, you know, let me know if didn't like how I did it, let me know if anything was unclear, whatever. Anyway, as always, if you did what you're hearing, make sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice, and be sure to subscribe, follow the podcast, whatever. So be sure to subscribe to or follow the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and all that good stuff as well. Tell a friend about the podcast, tell them that they'll learn how to rob banks, learn about history, learn about cryptids, get to hear me and my friends talk about movies, books, whatever else. This, you know, high key obsessed. It's about whatever I'm obsessed with. So there's a lot of stuff. Also, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at high key underscore obsessed underscore podcast and on Twitter at high key o podcast. And with that, I am out. So until next time, cheerio, you cheeky butters.